Welcome to Aiming for the Moon. I am Taylor Bledsoe. And I'm Maddie Henry. And on this podcast, we interview interesting people from a teenage perspective. That's right. And today we will be interviewing Dr. George Church. He's a professor at Harvard and MIT. He helped co-found a company called Colossal, which helps with de-extinction projects. He has also helped co-found 38 different companies, which cover a wide variety of fields. He's a giant name in biochemistry and genetics. He helped develop methods of the first genome sequence in 1994, as well as other projects since. So here's the interview. Well, welcome, Dr. Church, to the interview. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. So you are a professor at Harvard and MIT. You are the co-founder of Colossal, which is a company that is trying to bring back the woolly mammoth. You have also, you have done much research into the genetic, um, the genetic area of research, as well as biology. You have also been the co-founder of 38 different companies covering a variety of different fields. You've done many other things, written books and a lot of other stuff in between all of that area. Did I miss anything? Like you've had, you have quite an extensive bio. Oh, that, that's, that's enough. Uh, thank, I mean, that's, that's very generous of you. Thank you. We, we can uh, talk about the interview. <laughs> well, so to begin, I just wanted to ask you, why the woolly mammoth? Like, is there a reason that um, Colossal and you were working on bringing the woolly mammoth in particular? Uh, the, the short version of, of, a, of a long answer is that that uh, it's among the most charismatic of the endangered species and their recently extinct relatives. We're specifically interested in endangered species. In this case, all of the elephant species are endangered. And we're t- we hope to enrich them, uh, uh, their diversity, in particular their ability to survive in, in modern environments uh, by bringing in genes from uh, ancient DNA. Uh, we're not technically aiming, at least initially, for bringing back an extinct species. We're trying to enrich and and diversify existing endangered species, multiple species of elephants. And and then the other part of that is the the climate change component, which takes a long time to unpack. But basically, the absence of of elephants, the absence of herbivores to, to to convert trees to grass is resulting in putting uh, us at great risk uh, in terms of carbon. That's really interesting. So it's not as much creating a woolly mammoth. It's actually using the genes of a woolly mammoth to help um, the endangered species of now kind of keep coming. Correct. Yeah. That's fascinating. And we're not limited to woolly mammoth genes. We can also use, uh, other sources, uh, for example, we're working on ways to make them resistant to viruses that p- quite possibly the woolly mammoth was also um, uh, sensitive to these viruses. They're real, they're extinction level viruses. These are uh, herpes virus um, that are killing off uh, a large fraction of the newborns, uh, both in African and uh, Asian elephants. I'm curious. So obviously the movie Jurassic Park and Jurassic World came out and it's been a big hit as well as the book. So I'm assuming you're not using like mosquito and amber and all of that. How do you get these genes from the woolly mammoth? Is there like, I've heard that there's frozen woolly mammoths and there's stuff like that. 
how, where are you getting this, um, this DNA? There is absolutely no shortage of frozen, um, mammoth meat. Uh, it's a, the reason is that the, the Arctic is melting and that's what we're trying to stop. But while it's melting, uh, there are potentially millions of uh, mammoth carcasses that could become uh, exposed. And they're, of course, they're exposed to frozen temperatures. They're in fairly good shape um, in a kind of a morphological sense. They look like they just were frozen yesterday. But at a DNA level, they're broken up by a, a galactic cosmic radiation into a million pieces per, per cell. So, so that's why we have to read them into the computer and then make them whole again by, or, or, or use just pieces of them to inform and change modern elephant cells. Okay, that's really interesting. So I do have a question. You don't have to get into like the super technical side of it, but if you could explain it in kind of a basic level, but how are you doing this? How are you modifying the genes using maybe even just the woolly mammoth genes and modifying that and helping um, ex- almost extinct species? How are you doing that? Right. So uh, this is, uh, we've kind of reduced the risk of this process. So the, uh, by doing it in, in pigs first, uh, we, uh, but the, the process to your question is uh, you uh, edit all, uh, any cell using CRISPR or some other editing method. Uh, You can take synthetic DNA and based on the computer model of the, ancient DNA, you can bring it in, replace um, the DNA that's, that's in the Asian elephant cell, it can be almost any cell. Then you take the, then you engineer that multiple times. Then you take the nuclei from those cells and you put it uh, into essentially into a uh, embryo, implant the embryo into a surrogate. And then, uh, and then it grows up into a, a calf or a piglet, depending on the species. And we've done this with with pigs, we've engineered 42 different changes all at once into the genome of the germline of the pigs, and they're healthy and they're donating organs and all great things that can be done uh, with a properly engineered uh, pig genome. And so we think it's it's a, it's a it's a large animal. Just uh, we think it's a good model for what we're getting ready to do next. So how did you get involved in this? What got you interested in modifying genes and kind of using this? Because this is such a complicated and kind of special field. So how did you get into that? Well, first of all, it's it's not as complicated as it might seem. Uh, uh, But, uh, you know, I don't want to go too far back in history. But basically, I I was looking for things that that could... uh, capture a, a lot of different interests of mine, uh, interest in biology, chemistry, physics, computers, and so forth. And in the process of doing that, I stumbled on um, the folding of nucleic acids and proteins. And then that led me to genetics and then to genome pro- help start the genome project, and which is just reading the DNA. And then quickly uh, pivoted to writing DNA as well as reading and, and you do the two together. Um, and then that's been applied to a number of things, including human um, diseases and uh, veterinary uh, projects, uh, including like aging reversal in, in dogs. So my big question, as soon as I heard about you doing this project was 
where are you going to put it once you create it? Are you going to release it back into where these elephants are from? Or is there going to be like a zoo at Harvard or MIT or at this company? Like where exactly does this thing go once it's finished? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, we one one of the many we hope to put it in many places. These are intended for rewilding. There's there there've been hundreds, possibly thousands of, of uh, animals that have been rewilded in order to, uh, for a variety of of uh, human oriented uh, reasons uh, throughout North America and the world, and uh, that this would be to allow them to go into cold environments where there's less clash with humans. So this would help preserve their species. There are two things that are really deleterious. One is, is uh, clashing with humans because they're currently living in high population density regions. And this, and in the Arctic, there's, there are regions that have extremely low human population density. So that would give them a new home. Um, and uh, so that, so one place that we've been collaborating with for three years um, is Pleistocene Park, which is uh, in the northern part of Siberia, where uh, almost at the Arctic Ocean, and uh, and they have cleared land and have, sh- have done experiments showing the advantages of having er- restoring herbivores to the land. First, they have to knock down the trees uh, with machines, but th- that will that will be taken over by uh, elephants, which are which love knocking down trees. But in any case, they've done this. Uh, already at, with about seven different species that have been gone from that area uh, for a long time and it's working. And so they, so they're ready for the, the elephants. They're, they're excited about them because the elephants are the only uh, land animal that we know of that will kind of routinely knock down trees uh, aside from beavers. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. So basically they're creating their, these habitats for them. They're kind of taking a portion of land and changing it a little bit in order to suit these elephants that you guys are working on. That is a really interesting. I've never heard of that before. Uh, Well, it's more like the elephants will make the land suitable for the other uh, um, plant uh, eating animals. Uh, But they are clearing this land to test the hypothesis that it's a, that's a, that is, that it's going to work. And it looks like it looks very positive so far. That's, that is really, really cool. So what are the ramifications for like the environment? Is this going to be, obviously you've talked about this a little bit, but are there things that it would be kind of interesting? It's introducing an elephant that has human um, oversight into it, obviously, like more than just you guys took care of it, but you guys created it in a way. So do you think there's, is this going to be an overall good thing? Um, Because obviously there are the movies where you have a man intervening like Frankenstein, but then you also have the good things where we've been able to create vaccines and all the other stuff through human um, engineering. So what do you think? Do you think this is going to become a Terminator circumstance over time or if that makes sense? Or how do you think man's interaction in the future is going to be? Well, I think we're a much safer ground here with large animals. Uh, so, for example, goats were introduced into the Galapagos, you know, a century ago, and they turned out to be a net negative. Uh, it wasn't really a, a consideration when they were first introduced, but they step on the eggs of, uh, of the tortoises, which are so precious and so important to the tourism in, in Ecuador's uh, Galapagos Islands. 
So they eliminated the goats uh, wherever they were a, a threat to the other species. Um, I think this this will be similar. Uh, many, many of these herds of uh, Arctic elephants, uh, as they're restored, will have radio transmitters on them, and and they'll be they'll be heavily surveilled, if nothing else, for curiosity. But but uh, it, it will be easy enough to reverse the experiment if it if it turns out to be. Uh, um, deleterious to either to the plant or animal or other aspects of the um, country. That's, that's interesting. So it's kind of like in the way that researchers will tag sharks and other creatures to track them. You will also be surveying, of course, of course, as any experiment goes, you would also be surveying these creatures that you guys have released. So it's kind of like this controlled ecosystem. Is that what you are you're trying to create? Uh, it partially, yeah. So, I mean, we may even uh, try to guide their migrations. So elephants migrate tremendous distances. Uh, they, they go about twice the, 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 uh, di- the circumference of the earth in a lifetime um, in distance. Uh, so we might, you can guide them by dropping foods that they like. Uh, they have an exquisite sense of smell. They can smell things uh, 19 kilometers away, elephants can. Uh, so, um, anyway, so it, we'll, we'll, we'll try to, we'll, we will learn quite a bit about, uh, what causes them to, to migrate in particular directions. So I'm asked, I do wonder, have y'all had any success with this and do y'all kind of have a timeline of when you want to introduce these elephants into their habitat? Well, b- before we introduced, we, we obviously had, there was a lot of experiments to do, and there's a lot of conversations to be had with, uh, you know, representatives of different populations uh, that might be affected uh, and so forth. But, but in terms of the experiments, we, we've done, uh, we really only got funded seriously for this uh, in September of this year. Uh, we've been work, working on We've been thinking about it and talking about it since uh, around 2006, 2008. Um, but the, uh, we, what we have is a lot of preliminary results that we have published uh, on that are adjacent, the methodologies for um, uh, making uh, tissues and for the editing that we talked about earlier, um, for making uh, eggs and sperm and uh, endometrial cells that could support them if we want to use an alternative to the surrogate method. Um, so um, a lot of that, a lot of the relevant methods that we've developed are uh, publicly available and we will be publishing uh, more soon. That's, that is a fascinating um, kind of, that's a fascinating entire, this entire thing is super interesting. I'm curious. So, who is, I, I know that the company is funding this, of course, on your level, but is this, are these government grants? Who is funding the um, this project? Because I'm sure it's very expensive. Is, is this private investments? Is this public? Uh, so far, it's been entirely private. Uh, some philanthropic, uh, a fair, fair number of volunteers uh, around the world have helped in, in various ways. Uh, now, now that uh, we have much more serious money. It's not necessarily that expensive. Our, our lab kind of has a, a practice of trying to reduce the costs up front for, for big experiments. So, so for example, we re- reduce the cost of reading and writing DNA uh, by about 20 million fold. Um, 
which is uh, noticeable uh, if you're writing a grant. Um, and uh, and we will do this, and we are in the process of doing the same thing for this project is reducing the costs uh, so they'll be uh, um, reproducible on other endangered species. That is really interesting. So a lot of it is being wise with your money and getting right now, it's a lot of private things and it's a lot of private investors, but it's also being able to not spend on the like most expensive equipment. It's like running almost a minimalistic lab that still gets the job done. Right. And the governments are probably uh, interested in it if it, if it benefits the environment in some way uh, or increases tourism or, you know, any, if it's a net positive. And, and I would say the Russian government is probably the most uh, helpful so far in that they've helped establish this Pleistocene park in, in Northern Siberia uh, run by the, the Zimov family. Um, and uh, they've given them as much land as they need, uh, partly because the land out there is not extremely valuable. It's not, it's not farmable. Uh, they're very, very low population density. If you go far enough away from uh, the river, say, um, so, so anyway, they've, they've been very supportive and they're also very supportive of all the research done on the, the mammoths that are getting exposed by thawing. That's really interesting. And I'm so glad that this is like coming along because y'all are doing amazing things. And I'd love for y'all to help all of these endangered species. So we're going to have to sadly wrap up, um, but ask our first question of what books have an impact on you and why? Uh, well. Uh, so when I was, the biggest impact is when you're young, I think, and uh, I and I was uh, dyslexic, uh, or still am a little bit, but uh, I was quite dyslexic when I was young. And so the books that uh, I would look at were the ones with the best photographs, um, which was the Time Life series on nature and science, 25, roughly 25 volumes of each. Um, I also like uh, books on uh, biographies of uh, scientists. I mean, I didn't know any scientists at the time. I didn't, didn't really teach science in school, but uh, Luther Burbank, uh, Marie Curie, and so on. Those were very impactful. That's, yeah, that's interesting um, that dyslexia led you kind of into the science books. And um, it's, that's, my sister just got, got diagnosed with dyslexia a few um, months ago, actually. So that's been interesting. She's been listening to a lot of audiobooks now. So that's uh, that's been a big kind of revolution, I think, for people who have dyslexia with all the audiobooks and all that technology now. A absolutely. They used to be the only source of audiobooks for people that would especially prepare them for the disabled. Um, but yeah, now uh, my wife and I listen to them all the time while we're doing chores uh, so or driving. So um, yes, it's a real boon uh, for dyslexics. I, I've visited uh, schools for dyslexia and, uh, and, and it's really just amazing how creative the whole, the, the kids and the staff are. Yeah. That it seems like that would be another interview that would be really interesting to talk about dyslexia and everything that's kind of evolving in that area. Yeah. So our last question is what advice do you have for teenagers? Uh, so, uh, you know, hang in there, it gets better and better, uh, by, the, uh, by the time you're 66, like I am, uh, it, you'll really be enjoying yourself. Um, but there's, a, it, 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 
in, enjoy the things that only a teenager can do. That's that's one thing. Uh, learn, uh, uh, follow your instincts uh, as and the advice uh, of your elders, not but not blindly either one of those. Um, and there's just so much. There's so much uh, fun in, in learning. Uh, if you find the right job, uh, you'll never work a life in your uh, day in your life. <laughs> That's uh, uh, you will have. You'll just basically enjoy yourself every day of your life. So so find that that match between uh, what you love and what what people will pay you to do. <laughs> I I like that mantra. I'm going to try to do that once I kind of get my career and go to college and all of that. Um, That I'm looking forward to that. So thank you so much, Dr. Church, for coming on. We really enjoyed having you on and thank you for your time. Yeah, well, thank you for for, uh, doing this uh, recording. Okay, that was a very, very interesting interview. I've never heard of this thing where you use like genes to help the animals not go extinct. Have you ever heard of this? No, not at all. I've heard like of like people trying to combat extinction and stuff, but like moving them or like, you know, like purposely breeding things and like trying to revive a species. But no, I've never heard of this. This is it's a really fascinating way to deal with extinct animals. And I'm curious how many other animals that they're working with this on. He said that he kept emphasizing the point that the large animals are better to kind of introduce to the new environments and to kind of work on, which would seems kind of interesting because you think that because they're larger, they would be harder to do. At least that was my thought. So that was kind of interesting. I wonder how many other species and who's working on those other species this holds a lot of weight right now. Like if this does work and this does like really help these almost extinct species, the doors that it would open, you know, like if they can really perfect this and like start really helping, it would be crazy. It would be so awesome. And not just with like animals, like what if you could use some of these genes in order to combat cancer? For example, like if you had certain genes, I don't know, from elephants, or I know that jellyfish are used a lot. Like I heard that somewhere. Um, then if you did that, you might be able to use these certain genes. And I don't know, I, I'm not good at biochemistry, obviously. But if you maybe did a certain combination, you could combat cancer and many other diseases. That just was kind of where my mind went after the animals. So I just wanted to reemphasize this. This guy is a dual professor at Harvard and MIT. That means that he teaches at Harvard and then he goes and teaches at MIT, two of the top schools in the country. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) It's unbelievable. Unbelievably crazy. Like the workload. How? how? I don't know how you could do that. It's crazy. Among That's just the two things he does. Among everything else, I think he works somewhere else and I'd have to pull it up again. But I think that's... I mean, that's what it seemed like from his bio. That is really interesting. Plus the 38 companies he's co-founded. Like that alone. I mean, let that sink in. 38. I could not come up with like 10 different names or like ideas or, oh my gosh, it's crazy. Even if they're just using his research in the 38 companies that he's been a part of, that's still insane. Like, even if it's almost name only and they're using his research and his uh, technology for that, that's still crazy. I really think he's leading the way in something that, like, like I said earlier, could really revolutionize, like, how we look at extinction. 
like maybe not as like as dire of a situation now, like, oh, you know, like let's, let's really focus on this, but then we can like start bringing the species back. Like I'm really hoping this works out and like this entire project is super successful because like I said, the doors that that would unlock for us, it would be crazy. So I wish them the best of luck in their endeavors. I agree too. But the other thing that's interesting is it brings up this idea of purity of species then, which is kind of what I was thinking about. So it's kind of like, will the species who we haven't interfered with, if this goes on in the future, would they be, I guess they'd be more valued than the ones that we've genetically upgraded, if that makes sense. But so is, are we yeah. invent, is this inventing a new species? I'm, I'm curious to see how it changes. And um, we didn't really get into this, but that was something that if we hadn't back on, it'd be fascinated to talk about is does this, does the gene stuff that he's doing, does that create a new species or is this like a subclass of elephant? Cause that would be even crazier. Yeah. But I feel like if, if let's say a species of elephant or whatever is so close to extinction that they just, I'd rather have a um, genetically altered elephant or whatever of that species than just none of them at all, you know? So it's like kind of that tightrope of like, are, we just got to do something because this situation is so dire. But you, you bring up a valid point that I do wish we discussed. And our announcement section. Bing! Okay, so if you want to get in touch with us or you want to follow the news on Aiming for the Moon, Go to the Instagram and Twitter at aiming the number four moon. You can follow us there and we post updates. We post day in the life stuff, um, episode notifications. If you forgot about our last week's episode, that would be great. And we also have a website, which has an about page, a contact page. If you want to email us there, hey, if you want to email us and just tell us how we're doing, um, recommend guests or just say hi, that's great. You can use that for any of that. And don't forget to rate the podcast. We are on all major podcasting stuff. So we that really helps us gain more listeners, which allows us to get more guests. And it's a beautiful cycle of the podcast world. So that would be great. Don't forget to share it around. And all right, don't forget. Set your sights high. And aim for the moon.